can Ukraine tell to the world today? How is its history resembling histories and cultures of other postcolonial nations? Can Ukraine help develop a new 21st century eco-culture based upon its folkloric traditions? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My guest today is Anna Pidhorna, a Ukrainian composer and singer who emigrated from my hometown, Brovary, in 1990s as a teenager and is now living in Canada. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Hello, Anna. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. Uh, you are a Ukrainian who is living abroad for quite a long time, and uh, I guess you see changes in the perception of the Ukrainians and knowledge of Ukraine in the West, in your country. Uh, first, can you tell me your story, how how your life itinerary has developed, and what changes in perception uh, you have encountered? Uh, hello, Volodymyr. I'm really excited to be on this podcast uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, I have been living in Canada for 25 years. My family immigrated here in the 90s when I was a child. I was 12 years old. So I, you know, I was old enough that I have a lot of memories from Ukraine. Uh, but I basically grew up here. Like I did high school and all of my university education in Canada and the United States. So I have observed quite a few changes, I would say, in uh, how our diaspora is both perceived and how it's operating here. A really Canadian, like Ukrainian immigration to Canada started a very long time ago in the late uh, 19th century. And there's been sort of four major waves of immigrants here. The first three waves kind of occurred before the 1950s. And my understanding is that they were mostly from Western Ukraine, from the parts that were controlled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, so the cultural influence is more from that region. Um, and at this time, I think there was also immigration from the Russian-controlled side, but a lot of those people for a long time thought of themselves as Russian because their passport said that they were from the Russian Empire. And actually... Some of them now are looking at the map and discovering that they actually came from Ukraine, which is an interesting identity shift for some people. Um, my family came here under the fourth wave of immigration. So these are people who came uh, post-independence, um, which I would say were culturally quite different from the earlier waves. And up until now, I'd say there was very little interaction between the, the older diaspora and the new diaspora. We're really kind of different people in many ways. Um, a lot of the perception of the Ukrainian diaspora here was influenced by the 
kind of the kind of people who came in the first three waves. Uh, the first wave was really farmer, farmer settlers, largely. They came from very, very poor regions of Galicia, uh, and they were promised farmland in the prairie provinces. And what they discovered really was just wild prairie with bush and rocks that they had to clear with backbreaking labor. And there was also lands that, from which indigenous people were displaced. So there was there's a kind of a complex relationship between early Ukrainian settlers and the indigenous communities. Um, later waves started to feature more kind of workers and professionals. And then with the Soviet occupation of Western Ukraine and World War II, we got more political refugees here as well. So I would say a lot of the perception of Ukrainian diaspora is associated with these almost more stylized parts of our culture. Like you have the stylized Ukrainian dances, uh, the stylized like pisanke, stylized traditional costumes. So sort of the kind of things that almost similar to the way Soviet Union was portraying traditional Ukrainian culture, those same sort of like, yeah, everything very stylized and overly colorful. And then in terms of food, it's this traditional food, you know, your borscht, your vareniki, which are called pierogies here, uh, holopci, cabbage rolls, nalisniki, uh, which are, of course, really important in our culture, but this is basically all that is known of Ukrainian cuisine in North America. But on the other hand, everyone kind of knows it because the Ukrainian presence is so strong here. Uh, basically everyone or most people have attended like a some Ukrainian church dinner where they had borscht or pierogies and basically everyone here has a Ukrainian grandmother at least that's what it feels like because about 3.5% of the population is of Ukrainian descent which is quite significant uh, the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada is the second largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world after Russia. Uh, so, yeah. Tell me, tell me can, can you tell me your story? It's, it's very interesting because I assume that your parents, for example, why, why have they decided to leave Ukraine for Canada? Uh, was it in, in search for a professional, professional life? I assume there were, uh, what professions they have and, uh, did they, what was their perception of Ukraine when they leave, when you left? Because I can assume that in the 90s, Ukraine was perceived by many people inside Ukraine as well as a kind of a very, a country you should leave, basically. A country that it's not really good for living. What is your story? Yeah, absolutely. So we were, in a sense, kind of post-Soviet refugees um, like, uh, my parents really struggled financially, like a lot of people in the 90s in Ukraine. My father was a, an engineer who taught himself how to do like computer programming. My mother was a chemist. Uh, so both high, highly educated professionals, you know, my grandparents are also engineers. Uh, but uh, at some point, they, they had to sew four coats to make a living. So our small apartment in Bravary was turned into a coat making factory essentially so someone would deliver fur pelts 
my dad would stretch them out on these big sheets of plywood and then they would you know cut them and my mom would sew them into these fur coats that then got taken away and essentially like sold on the black market I think um so that's how we survived and you know there was the daily uh, electricity blackouts uh we basically never had hot water I did not grow up with that luxury we often didn't have heating because our our apartment building it was new and constructed out of defective materials and not in the city plans so when the first winter started it turned out that it wasn't actually connected to municipal services and there was this whole bureaucratic chase of trying to prove that our building was real that was kind of interesting uh so my parents like the way they describe it they felt like they were jumping from um like a ice float ice float to ice float and each each piece of ice was getting smaller and smaller so in a sense they had very little to lose we didn't own an apartment we had very little so they just and they felt like oh the country for the first time the borders are open we can actually go somewhere so there was also this sense of adventure that you could see the world now. And like Canada was accepting immigrants at that point. And they literally looked at a children's atlas of Canada and saw, oh, look, Vancouver has ocean and mountains. Let's go there. And so arrived with no connections, very basic level of English and with just a few suitcases. Dramatic and, and interesting at the same time. Uh, to our listeners, I will say that the uh, interesting thing about our conversation that I am currently living in Brovary, from mm -hmm. which uh, Anna's parents have immigrated in the 90s. Uh, I was not living here in the 90s. Uh, I was living in Kiev. But why I moved to Brovary, which is a Kiev suburb, it was rather a sign of success, successful development of, of Kyiv, of Ukraine, and the economy was was developing. It, it was even overheating in the year, in the 2000s. Then there were several crises. And then suddenly we realized that uh, for our young family, we cannot buy an apartment in Kyiv. It was too expensive. So we needed to look to places like Brovary. And my hypothesis about this Russian invasion is that Russians really understand that Ukraine is highly developing right now, especially in the 2010s, 2000, early 2020s. My metaphor is that it, it is like a plane that started uh, started going up and they and they just want to, to, to put it down. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, when you were looking at Ukrainian developments, for example, you're looking from the from behind the ocean, from from the other side of the ocean. Did you did you still have some some empathy uh, towards the country? Oh, you were so young that you basically didn't have enough memories, and uh, and uh, so what was the point when you probably started rediscovering Ukraine, or was Ukraine? always with you and your parents? It's been a really complex relationship, to be honest. Yeah, definitely for the first at least decade or so of our life here, there was a sense that we escaped something. 
that yeah, Ukraine, like you said, was a country to leave, and that I I had this perception for a long time that everyone wants to leave Ukraine, and and they should because you know there's no way to develop there. Uh, I just always had this. I carried this idea with me that there was a clone of me living back in Ukraine that got left behind. And I periodically think, what would that clone be doing right now? What kind of life would she leave? And to me, for a long time, it felt like it would just be an unacceptable life. But I also would, you know, periodically go back to Ukraine to visit family and friends, but kind of like every five, three to five years. And each time, you know, there were really perceptible changes, for sure. Like, when we first came to Vancouver, Ukraine at that point didn't even have supermarkets. I think the first one opened in central Kiev, and, like, we went to see it like tourists. And then we came to Canada, and there was just this abundance of everything. Like, we were literally taking pictures of ourselves at the grocery store and take, sending them back to Ukraine so, so people could look at like everything that's sold here, which right now to modern Ukrainians obviously sounds absolutely ridiculous because you you have all of these things there now. So we've kind of watched Ukraine progress in that way. And I think it's over the last 10 years or so is when I really started very actively re-engaging with Ukrainian culture as an adult, mostly through my interactions with Ukrainian folk music. And through that, I started to interact a lot more with kind of people my age in Ukraine who were doing really cool things and who were really connected with Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian language. Uh, yes, my family is also primarily Russian speaking, so I've had to relearn Ukrainian as an adult. Um, and it's like gradually, as I, I started to understand that actually Ukraine has developed far beyond my memories of it and now it's not necessarily a country that everyone wants to leave like there's people living interesting lives there uh they have materially a much better life and in many ways you could even say life in ukraine is maybe even easier than in canada so canada is extremely expensive so the idea of like owning any kind of property now is largely out of reach for most people. And the country really operates on a kind of debt mentality. You have to borrow money for everything, which creates its own difficulties. So yeah, my, my relationship with Ukraine has definitely shifted to something that's, it's, it became a fascinating place. And I also gradually started to realize that I'm actually a lot more Ukrainian than I thought. The first kind of 10-15 years of my, of my life was really about assimilating into Canadian culture and kind of erasing Ukrainianness because I really wanted to fit in here. But then now, and especially with the this full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there's, I'm getting a sense that I'm actually a lot more of an immigrant in this place than I thought. Interesting. Uh, and... Uh... Coming back to this metaphor that Ukraine was a country you want to leave in the 90s and leaving, going abroad was a kind of privilege, I would say that today, for example, to myself, I'm a person who traveled a, a little bit around the world, not, not much, but still I have 
a few years of living experience in France, for example. Uh, I've been one year to the United States. I haven't been to Canada, unfortunately. Uh, I've traveled across Europe, but now I, I, I'm, I'm, receiving a lot, uh, I'm receiving a lot of invitations to go to Europe, to make a lecture, to participate in a discussion and uh, about the war, of course. And uh, I, I, I refused all the time. And uh, my feeling was that staying in Ukraine right now is a privilege, not, not going abroad. Mm. So interesting how, how things change. Yeah, so absolutely. you mentioned... You mentioned your interest to the folk music, and I would I would come back to this later. But uh, obviously, culture is something very very interesting in Ukraine right now. It is one of the most powerful languages, I think, in the way how Ukraine Ukraine is now talking to the world. Uh, and my hypothesis is that these folkloric traditions have always been present in Ukraine, and and they were always been a kind of a a, a point of revolt against the official culture, Russian culture or Soviet culture. So it's a paradox that going back to traditions, to, to the past, we are at the same time revolting against a certain present. So in, in which way the Ukrainian culture, and in, in, in particular maybe Ukrainian music, you think can be interesting to the world and why? Well... First of all, I want to say that definitely I have had to go, go through a process of sort of recognizing and dealing with the imperialist legacy in myself as a human being and as an artist. Definitely grew up thinking that Ukrainian culture was inferior, both in relation to Russian, but also in the wider world. Like, you know, Ukraine tends to get perceived as not a country you really want to go to and not a country that has much interesting, well, up until recently, for sure. Uh, there was even an incident when my, my mom and sister were go, flying to Ukraine through Britain some years ago and uh, they were speaking to the border agent and he looked at their ticket and he said, you know, British Airways do fly to more interesting places. And, and we kind of like chuckled at that, but there was some a lot of internalized feeling of like, yeah, he's kind of right. You know, the only reason we're going to Ukraine is because we have family there. So this kind of, there's needs to be a lot of personal decolonizing that that happens. And I think in this way, Ukraine really connects with many, many cultures around the world. Um particularly other cultures that have been colonized. And this is a, really a conversation that Ukraine can bring a lot to the table uh, to kind of promote a mutual healing and mutual development between all of these formerly colonized people. So that's a really big one, and we can get into that more later. Another one, broadly speaking, is that something you also talk about on your podcast quite a bit, is that the West in many ways has a kind of settled culture and a sort of like settled bureaucracy, settled rules. And there's a certain kind of cynicism here and this idea that like government sort of like the society is, operates automatically and people don't really need to do very much to upkeep it. 
um, and they don't necessarily need to question very much on the one hand. So there isn't actually a high level of political participation in a country like Canada. People just like take for granted that this country works. But then on the opposite extreme, there's people who kind of get into a lot of conspiracy thinking and who believe on the in the other extreme that our government is dictatorial and controls everything and mess meddles with people's lives and so they think that they're living in a dictatorship which is just crazy to me as someone who actually comes from a dictatorship it's just i just want to shake them and say you don't know what you're talking about and this kind of really came out during the pandemic like canada had this now famous freedom convoy with the truckers that raised a lot of questions like in some ways legitimate questions about what is freedom and now looking at the way ukraine is literally fighting for freedom and life it's just it's such a contrast like it really i think is making a lot of people think about this idea of what freedom is and what do you actually need to do to uphold it uh it's it's really inspiring um yeah, I think that that's a really big thing that Ukraine is contributing culturally right now. So you mentioned this colonialism and imperialism, and let us try to talk about this, because Ukrainian experiences in many aspects this experience of fight against imperialism and tyranny, uh, an experience of uh, also fighting against colonialism. But in, our, in, in your letters to me, when we were discussing this podcast, this episode, you were uh, quoting a lot of other examples, which are not necessarily on, on the radars of Ukrainians or people who are, who are dealing with Ukraine in the Western world, for example. We are so much comparing Ukraine to, to Russia, to Poland, to some other European countries. But there are maybe other cultures which which can be compared. And what, what are your examples? What would you, what you, whom would you compare the Ukrainian experience to? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about living in Canada is that um, I'm here kind of as a, a refugee from a colonized land, but I'm also a settler in the land that was colonized by other people. You know, Western Europeans came here and uh, gradually subjugated the indigenous population and did a lot to deliberately destroy its culture and just suppress the people and ensure that it is very difficult. It's been very difficult for them to develop further or to maintain their traditional ways of life. It's uh, kind of a, a horrible reality of this history here. So I've had to really grapple with the meaning of my life here and the relationships to the people. So I really think Ukraine should look at indigenous populations around the world more. I think Ukrainians can have a bit of a dismissive attitude towards indigenous people. There's this perception maybe that they're primitive, uh, that this isn't like civilization in quotes that we're that ukrainians aspire to so ukrainians always look at europe and try to say we're european we're we're quote-unquote civilized and things like that but we actually just come from this position of ignorance of not knowing 
how these indigenous societies functioned, what they how they organized their lives, what they brought to the development of humanity, and then the idea that many things that were done to them by colonizers were similar to what happened to Ukrainians. So there's once you actually start talking to people from the communities here and they're interacting with the artists from these communities, you see a lot of similar threads and a lot of similar fights, a lot of similar wounds that need to be healed. So the more I interact with indigenous artists here, the more I feel this like sense of connection through things like a rootedness in the soil. Like Ukrainians are really rooted to the land. You know, we're, we're gardeners. Um, our folk music has all of these references to the natural world, to birds, to trees, and it all is symbolic of different cultural archetypes. And it's just intertwined in our life. And that's a similar situation in the indigenous mythology here in North America, or what they call Turtle Island. Uh, there's this relationship with the natural world where animals and birds and trees and even what we consider to be inanimate objects are seen as beings that have an equal right to exist on the earth and that deserve human respect and collaboration. So in that, I think there are some connections there that we can explore. And there is a similar kind of reaching towards tradition in order to move the community forward into the future. So I think in one of your episodes, you talked about how in Ukraine, this reaching towards traditional activities, traditional music making and crafts, it's not a nostalgic thing. It's actually a way to move forward. So we're, you take the you take your traditions, you reroute yourself to things that were taken away from you, and then you develop it and take it into a future. So this is the same thing that's happening with indigenous communities here. And there, it's, there's just beautiful art produced out of this. Uh, so there's one major thread. And I, I, I also want to acknowledge that the histories are very different and you can't draw complete parallels between our histories, but there's enough threads of commonality that it's a really interesting conversation. That's very interesting, and uh, this is really resonates to my thinking about Ukraine. I do think that we have to take this traditionalism as something, uh, as, as a way to the future. And uh, this connection to nature is actually very future oriented right now because yes. we all we are all talking about ecosystems eco world fight against climate change uh changing our 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 attitude to the nature and maybe these cultures which were not very much urbanized that have these these topics in in their in their traditions that are really you, you beautiful and Named it as a kind of a talking even to inanimate objects as 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 living beings. This kind of a animism, a very very deep in the society, maybe even pre-Christian. And yes, this is absolutely. Something also, mm-hmm. which intrigues me is that, for example, a big difference between uh, 
between uh, neighboring countries uh, in Ukraine, for example, for Poland, the the Catholic identity is very important. For for Russians, obviously, this Russian uh, Orthodox identity, which which they perceived in a very perverse way, I think. But for Ukrainians, there is no no single Christian confession. Ukrainians can be Greek or Catholics. Roman Catholics, Orthodox, uh, Protestants, they can be Muslims as Crimean Tatars. But I think there is something that can unify us is that maybe even pre-Christian or early Christian tradition of uh, of really thinking about about the nature as such and, and thinking about human being as a, as a part of the nature. Uh, so do, do you really see the potential the, the potential for the future i mean this art and this culture which is so much deeply rooted in nature can actually bring a new kind of um, echo thinking yes absolutely um so uh, right now i'm actually i'm reading this beautiful beautiful book by robin wall kimmerer called braiding sweetgrass she's an indigenous writer who's also a, a biologist trained in the Western tradition. And her whole philosophy is to combine indigenous knowledge of the natural world with Western scientific understanding in order to create a kind of more balanced coexistence with the environment uh, that nurtures both scientific understanding and that kind of deep, deep personal respect and the care for everything that's around you. And just reading this book, there's so many things that resonate for me. There's just such deep respect and love for gardening and growing plants that is such a big part of Ukrainian culture too. Like we basically recreated a Ukrainian dacha on our little piece of land here in the middle of Vancouver. You know, we have like tomatoes and pumpkins uh, growing here. So the only thing we don't have is potatoes. Uh, so there's a lot of similarity with that. And yes, I do think that this is a way to move to the future where technology is not seen as a competition with nature, where we're not trying to separate ourselves from nature, but where we recognize our interdependence and we use technology in order to create a better, healthier, more sustainable way of living. That's very interesting because I'm increasingly living on a dacha of uh, of our parents with with my wife Tanya and with my co-host, and um, actually uh, I'm 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 a person who was very skeptical about this dacha living <laughs> some years ago, and uh, uh, as I turned forty and later, I mean, it's just incredible, incredible thing, and. Uh, you know this this image of the garden is very very intrinsically linked to the Ukrainian perception of ourselves. And uh, for example, our greatest philosopher and founding father of Ukrainian philosophy, Grigory Skovoroda, his uh, his top uh, yeah, creation was a cycle of poems, which is called the Garden of Divine Songs. So you have music here, you have the garden, you have uh, religion. And very interesting thing, and and uh, I've just we've just come back to Kharkiv. Kharkiv is a very right now a fortress city, but at the same time a very wounded city. And we visited the, this place where Skoroda actually lived his uh, last days. 
and where there is a museum which is destroyed by Russian missile in May, a totally destroyed building, but around it there is a real garden, the fantastic, fantastic garden, the best place I've ever been for meditation, actually. Mm. Uh, so I think this, this, this idea of the garden uh, is very important, and uh, today we had a discussion with, with some good people how uh, discussion, the public discussion, how can we reconstruct our cities and I suddenly came up to a conclusion that we, we really should build cities as gardens, like city gardens or something like that. Absolutely. So uh, That's actually something, uh, one really lovely thing in Canada is there's, there's a whole network of community gardens here. So people organize these gardens on plots of kind of unused land in the cities or in the parks where people can make use of really small bits of land like you know just a few square meters to just grow whatever they want to grow um and it's lovely just as a passerby you get to interact with these gardens you get to look at people's cabbages and flowers and there's just a sense of peace to it and i know a lot of the time these gardens are also used as healing projects for uh really you know people who come from marginalized communities who are struggling with poverty and maybe crime and this is a way to kind of root them more into the soil and make them feel more connected to the place they live and to help them feel more in control of their life too because they can control at least some of their food supply yeah, and interesting that this metaphor of the garden was perceived, uh, was was taught to us in schools since something provincial. I mean, this cherry garden by mm-hmm. by Ukrainian poets. But now I think we are rethinking this. And for example, one of the metaphors of one of Ukrainian philosophers, Vyacheslav Lipinsky, who wrote Listy Dobrativ Hliborobiv, the letters for brothers uh, bread uh, how to say bread, bread. cultivators so, yes. yeah and uh, and I, when i was younger i perceived it as something very provincial metaphor so why he would address ukrainians as bread cultivators i'm not i'm not a person living in the countryside i'm living in the city in the capital city why am i a bread cultivator but i i, I now think that there is a big metaphor in this because when you're dealing with something organic, you really have very specific attitude to the future, because you 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 plan the future. It 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 doesn't mean that you you just do something without any planning and you're anarchist or whatever. You're really planning the future. You're very careful about the future, but at the same time, and you understand that everything next year will depend on what you do now so there is a clear connection if you if you don't do something today you will probably have nothing to eat like the next year but at the same time there is this attitude to the future that not everything depends on you because you you seed something and then it will grow and you're not really controller of it so it's interesting interesting thinking what do you think uh yeah um absolutely and i think there's also this maybe there's also this idea of maybe yeah combining both planning but also a little bit of chaos because you can't fully control your garden you can't 
controlled the pests that uh, inhabit it, but also this idea that you have to start sharing with the other creatures that live around you. For example, on our property, we have skunks living behind our garage that wander past and eat our lettuce occasionally. We have raccoons that uh, have their eye on the grapes and the plums. There's crows, there's squirrels that have a liking for red berries or red Christmas lights. And it's like you could try to keep all of this out or you can accept that all of these animals are part of the ecosystem and we need to share with them and take care of them to some extent. Yeah, same story with us because we have a dog which we didn't didn't own, don't own. It's actually a dog, very smart one, who goes from the house to house. And we we built a little house in in our place, and we feed her, of course. But she's like a free dog, so she she mm-hmm. can come this night or not come this night. And then we have around seven cats which visit just our house, we, we feed them. And my older daughter, she's a fan of cats, and she asked us, oh, come on, can you buy me a cat? And and we said, not yet, you know, in the apartment, it's difficult. But when we increasingly moved to the dacha, she's surrounded by six, seven cats, which, mm-hmm. which come, and uh, it's, it's very interesting. And they're free, so, you know, they're not confined yeah. to your apartment. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So they can come to today and maybe not come tomorrow. We don't know. They, they do anything they want. So, and I really, I, I really do feel myself in this divine garden that Skovoroda described because this is the garden of divine creatures. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you don't own them and they, you just help them to survive because you just feed them sometimes and that's it. Let's talk about music because you're you're a musician and you 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 said that you're interested in this folk music. What kind of folk music are you interested in? Maybe what kind of music, Ukrainian music, you would advise to somebody who didn't know anything about Ukrainian music? Maybe something from very traditional things and something from modern things. What would you say? Well, my interest in um, traditional music has all mostly been towards uh, vocal music, so unaccompanied multi-part singing. Uh, About 10 years ago, I spent three months in Ukraine living in Kiev and then going to different villages in Chernihivska Oblast and um, in uh, Polisia. Uh, It was a really transformative experience for me, kind of staying in these very traditional houses with elderly ladies and eating with them, listening to their stories and recording this music. And then a lot of my work has come out of this kind of ethnographic research. I've been uh, combining um, folk, like elements of folk music with more kind of Western classical approaches to music composition and developing a sort of fusion singing style that combines folk and classical elements. So that's a a major part of my practice. And this is the kind of music that I'm also really drawn to coming out both of Ukraine and from other cultures as well. Uh, So, and actually in this way, I have had had a kind of very strong and unexpected connection with Ireland, for example, which is another country I would like to highlight for Ukraine as a place to look. Ukrainians don't really talk about Ireland very much, but we have a lot of historical parallels with that country 
in terms of the way we were colonized by a larger neighbor, also having been a really strong, well-developed culture in the Middle Ages and then just getting obliterated in a way by the stronger neighbor. Um, and there's a lot of connection, too, with the strength of the oral, musical, and poetic tradition in Ireland. The, the music sounds different and the language is very different, but there's a certain kind of similar philosophies of how the language connects to the land and how the language forms the music and vice versa. It's all really intertwined and all of it connects to build a sort of mentality of life in Ireland that is in opposition to the colonialist English culture. So um, I had an, just the honor and the opportunity to set Irish poetry a few years ago uh, for a project called Irish Art Song Project because some people discovered that there are almost no there's almost no classical music in the Irish language. There's this separation where just like in Ukraine, Ukrainian was seen as the, like the language of the peasants, and Russian was seen as the language of high culture. Same thing in Ireland. Irish is the peasant traditional language, and English is the high culture language, even though Irish has this rich, rich, long tradition of scholarship and poetry that is really complex and well-developed. So, you know, I got to write music in Irish, which was an immense, immensely pleasurable and a great honor. And then I received an email from an Irish singer who was learning my pieces, and she said, you know, thank you for your music. I've never had a chance to sing in Irish before. And it was just such a mind-bending experience to be a Ukrainian person who was, grew up in Canada speaking English, creating something in Irish for an Irish person to connect with her culture. It was very strange, but also beautiful. So I've drawn a lot of inspiration from these connections between our countries musically and kind of spiritually and psychologically. Um, and then in terms of, you asked me to, what other music I'm listening to in Ukraine. So I think because, as I mentioned, I've also had to deal with this kind of internalized inferiority complex. I'm only now really starting to delve into Ukrainian music outside of the folk scene. Uh, so I'm just kind of starting to discover Ukrainian composers and more contemporary Ukrainian music making. So I don't know that I can give specific recommendations on that front, but I, I can give some resources like the uh, ukrainianlive.org is a really great resource for discovering Ukrainian composers and getting access to musical scores for performers. There's also the Clackers uh, blog that has excellent articles in, in English about Ukrainian classical music and also literature and other and visual arts. It's really great. There's also the Ukrainian Association of Electroacoustic Music that really gathers all the experimental electronic music under its umbrella. Uh, and But in terms of my personal favorite of people who really uh, perfect this aesthetic of reaching back but then moving forward is Daha Braha of course, who are well-known in Ukraine and also well-known in the West. Uh, 
I know I went to see them in New York. The concert hall was full, and it was not just Ukrainians in that hall. There were a bunch of English speakers there, and they loved it. And same, similarly, my parents went to see them in Vancouver, and they had young Canadians sitting next to them who were asking them for translations of the text. So it was really amazing what Daha Bracha is doing, but both for Ukrainian music and Ukrainian and the perception of Ukraine in the world. Yeah, I absolutely agree that Daha Bracha is absolutely fantastic. And uh, we will also give some links to the description of those uh, of this podcast. Um, you can you can check it, and uh, maybe you can uh, develop your understanding of Ukrainian music. We also wrote a few texts about Ukrainian contemporary music on our website ukraineworld.org, and this connection between folk traditions and m- modern rhythm, modern aesthetics, contemporary aesthetics is very interesting. Daha Bracha, of course, but there is also Go A, which sh- shined uh, um, last year on Eurovision. There is uh, this winner of of this year's Eurovision, the Kalosh Orchestra, and uh, there is Onuka. There are there is so so many other other bands, but there is also uh, more traditional people who just develop uh, and play the traditional music, like Taras Kompanichenko and, mm-hmm. and, and many others. Thank you, Anna. Well, it's it's a big pleasure to talk to you. Unfortunately, we are already reaching our our time limit, and uh, we will share your recommendations. And we we hope that this podcast is a kind of a window for those who are interested not only in Ukrainian music but also in Ukrainian culture in general. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vladimir. After we made our conversation. Anna has sent to me a new response to the question what Ukraine gives to the world right now. And I think her reflections are very interesting. Let's listen to them. Ukraine is a society and a culture in flux, out of necessity. Prior to the full-scale invasion, um, Ukraine was trying to process the whole post-Soviet, post-colonialist reality and to develop technologically to kind of catch up with the Western world. And now there's this huge existential and physical crisis where the country is literally being destroyed and it's forcing Ukrainians to react really quickly and to be creative and to rethink a lot of Uh, our values. So I think this is actually something that's really useful for the West because, or the world at large, uh, because there are some really big, big global problems that we need to fix, such as the environment and all the environmental catastrophes that are increasingly happening to us. And there is a bit of a, or a major tendency in the West where People are so used to a particular standard of living and to particular habits where it's really difficult for people to change their habits and lifestyles in order to fix the large problems they need to be fixing. It's sort of like, yeah, it would be nice for us to live in harmony with nature, but like we can't we can't just go back and live in a cave sort of thing. And uh, I think... Ukraine can potentially be an example for the world of 
how you can make really huge changes and rebuild um, in a way that is more sustainable. So I'm I'm really curious how Ukraine will rebuild from this war. Is it just going to rebuild according to the old models or is it going to rebuild in a more environmentally friendly way? Right now, the Western world is really looking at Ukraine with brand new eyes, whereas before the country was really not something that most people ever thought about, or if they did, it was just some backward country in Europe. Uh, Now, people are seeing it anew as a, a kind of vibrant society that has a lot to offer, a lot of inspiration to offer to the world. Uh, So I think this is really the strength of Ukrainian culture right now, is to show, is to ask these kinds of bigger questions of how do we rebuild our life? How do we use our past knowledge to build a more sustainable future? And I think Ukraine can be a really great example for this more settled, more comfortable Western world of how do you shake up your life and how do you change your habits? How do you exist with extreme uncertainty? These are all things that are difficult for Westerners, but something that we really need to learn to do in these cultures in order to face the problems that are facing humanity right now. Ukraine has had a lot more experience with change in its history just because of the reality of our lives and so Ukrainians have a kind of more flexibility and spontaneity in uh, our character that can be really chaotic on the one hand but also comes in really handy when you're dealing with these kinds of momentous changes that you couldn't have planned for. I truly think that this is one of the most important things Ukraine can bring to the world is this discussion of how do you exist with uncertainty and how do you move on from it and all of this has been a part of our cultural products this whole time in our literature in our music in our visual arts it's it's all there This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. My guest was Anna Pidhorna, a singer and composer from Canada who emigrated from Ukraine in the 1990s. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on various podcast platforms. And let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your assistance to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Patreon.com slash Ukraine World. You can also send your donations at PayPal, Ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. Thank you.